Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. It's Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Denis Rancourt, who is a full professor of physics in Ottawa, Canada. And we're going to be discussing a very controversial topic, the use of face masks. And by controversial, I mean, there's a really wide range of opinions on this, even when people within the natural health community. We have individuals like Mike Adams from Natural News and Chris Masterson from Peak Prosperity who are avid proponents of using face masks. And of course, uh, as is most of the country, but there's, there, there's another side to this equation. I uh, was actually endorsing face masks myself and, and posted a video early in this, like in Mar- early March, maybe it's probably early March, promoting the use of face masks based on the um, experience of some of the uh, Eastern European countries and, 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 uh, it, and just the rational logic of it seemed to make sense at the time. But since then, I have interviewed Judy Mikovits, who uh, was a strong opponent and did not recommend the use of masks for a variety of reasons that we'll discuss. So I want to tease through these details. And Denis is one of the experts who has really studied this very carefully, even though he doesn't have a degree in biology, he's a degree in physics, and I have enormous respect for physics. I, I, I just enamored with their brain power to figure these uh, aspects of reality out and require high level mathematics and I, I, somewhat intimidated by the intellectual powers required to, to participate in that dialogue. But um, I, I perhaps maybe the first place we can start is your background because some people might um, counter that you really have no formal training in biology, but you are a scientist. There's no question it's, it's, it's studying physics. So tell us about your, your specific training and um, why you first became interested in this topic. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, uh, it's, a, it's my pleasure to be on the show. Um, first, I want to clarify, I'm not presently a full professor of physics at the University of Ottawa. That's my former position. I'm now a researcher at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association. Okay. And I've, been, uh, I've been in that uh, position, which is a volunteer position since 2014. And it's given me the occasion to really get into some deep scientific issues that have an impact oh. on uh, civil rights. For six years, you've been doing that. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So what pays the bills for you, though? I mean- <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there are no worries on that side. So, okay. uh, uh, you know, the, the, that's not a problem. Oh, that's good. Uh, but um, getting back to my background, it's true that my PhD is in physics. My university degrees are in physics. Uh, I did postdoctoral work in chemistry. I was in a big chemistry lab in France for my postdoctoral work. And I have been a very interdisciplinary science. When I was a full professor, I was actually cross-appointed 
to supervise students in the earth and environmental sciences, as well as in physics. And I was a, a, the lead researcher in, some, in my own laboratory and in some big research teams. And as lead researcher, I supervised postdoctoral fellows and graduate students in various disciplines, including biology and so on. So I was, I was the, the boss of uh, these teams and uh, they were very interdisciplinary teams. Uh, one of the large projects I ran was to study boreal forest lakes. We looked at a hundred boreal forest lakes and their biochemistry, uh, the water columns, their sediments, the sediment profiles. And we, we applied techniques of including uh, microbe uh, techniques. I've written papers on microbial interactions in the environment, uh, important papers that have been well cited. So I know a lot of different areas of science. I'm a very interdisciplinary person and I've uh, published over 100 scientific articles in leading uh, peer-reviewed journals. And I've also written many societal uh, comment essays that have been very popular. And I wrote a book also about freedom of expression in, in the fight against racism, um, which I have recently made uh, freely available on, on the internet. So that kind of gives a very nutshell picture of my, of my activities, let's put it that way. Okay, great. So are you still in Ottawa? Yes, I am. I'm, uh, I'm doing the interview from Ottawa right now. Yes. Okay, great. My, my ex-wife lives there. She's a physician <laughs> up in Ottawa and uh, native. I was actually born there too. So anyway, uh, I'm wondering what motivated you to pursue this mask topic at such great depth as you have. Yes, well, it's, it's, it, it was part of my research at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association. Okay. We immediately recognized when this, uh, uh, when there started to be talk in the media of this new uh, viral um, epidemic, which, which was then declared a pandemic, we immediately recognized it as being something that we should pay attention to. And I immediately started researching uh, the, the epidemiology and the virology of this thing and reading the papers as they came out and then seeing how there was a big emphasis on masks, I became interested in that. So I did a very thorough study of uh, the scientific literature on masks and I concentrated on, is there any evidence that masks can be of help in terms of reducing the risk of getting one of these viral respiratory diseases? And what I found is when I looked at all the randomized controlled trials with verified outcome, meaning you actually measure whether or not the person was infected, um, I found that there were none of these uh, uh, well-designed studies that are intended to remove any bias, any observational bias. Out of all of the many trials that were done, none found that there was a statistically significant advantage for this application to wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask. And likewise, there is no detectable difference between respirators and uh, uh, surgical masks. So uh, that to me was a clear sign that the science was telling us that they could not detect a, a positive utility of masks in this application. And so we're talking many really uh, quality trials. And so what, what this means, this is very important, because what it means is that, you see, if there was any significant advantage to wearing a mask to reduce this risk, 
then uh, you would have detected that in at least one of these trials. And there's no sign of it. So that, to me, is a firm scientific conclusion. There is no evidence that masks are of any utility, either preventing um, the, the aerosol particles from coming out or from going in. You know, you're not helping the people around you by wearing a mask, and you're not helping yourself preventing the disease by wearing a mask. The science is unambiguous in that such an effect, positive effect, cannot be detected. So that was the first thing that I uh, publicized and wrote a, wrote a large uh, review of the scientific literature about that. But then I asked myself as a physicist and as a scientist, why would that be? Why would masks not work at all? And so I looked into um, the, the biology and physics of how, you, how these diseases are transmitted. Well, and what uh, I found... I think it's fair to say we are in a brave new normal. We're irrationally paranoid and authoritarian and largely because of the enormous amount of fear being engendered by the conventional mainstream media the vast majority of the population uh, believes in masks and has now actually initially they weren't but because of all this messaging that's been going out over the last few months uh, you are essentially vilified if you are seen in the public, most public places now without a mask, and you will not be able to fly without a mask, and you won't be able to take an Uber or a Lyft without a mask. So the consensus of the public is firmly in favor of masks. So I want to present their position and have you respond to that, because part of it, as I said, I posted this video uh, a few months ago, and the, what the, the video focused on was uh, a group in the Czech Republic who was one of the first adopters of wearing masks in, in Europe. And interestingly, uh, and they had really rigid uh, controls on people coming into the country. And, and they appear to have had really quite good success. They've only had a few hundred deaths. And when you contrast this to Sweden, who's a, a country which about the same population of the Czech Republic, had more than 10 times that amount of deaths. And I think that deaths is the best barometer of what we're seeking to uh, assess because number of cases in my mind is 100% irrelevant. That's another discussion we can could dive into later. But the deaths is really sort of a hard endpoint if in fact the deaths are being categorized correctly because you can have people like George Floyd uh, who was killed, murdered by a police officer, but he had COVID-19. So I believe his death is counted as a COVID-19 death, not as a homicide, which is insane. So, and that's just one example of it. So these, these death numbers are off, but anyway. So how do you counter the fact, this, the experience of the Czech Republic, uh, where there appears to be some effectiveness of this strategy? Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack in your many questions there. It's all yours now. Okay, well, first of all, I agree that uh, deaths, you cannot easily fake a death, and a death is counted as a death, so a death is a death, and so you have to look at deaths. And, but you cannot, you have to look at all-cause mortality deaths. You have to look at all-cause mortality data on a per-week or per-day basis, 
because that's reliable. If you try to assign a cause of death in a complicated situation like this with a viral respiratory infection that uh, taxes your immune system and, and you die if you have comorbidity conditions, to try to unravel that is it's known. Epidemiologists have known this forever <laughs> since since the since the discipline started that you 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 can't reliably do that. And there's tremendous sources of bias, and there always have been in terms of assigning deaths in the middle of an epidemic. So you don't do that. You look at all cause mortality. And I've done that. I did a detailed study of the actual current data of all cause mortality. And what you find is that, and this is very important, the winter burden deaths, all causes, is not any different statistically from the previous several decades, okay? Mm -hmm. So this was not a killer uh, pathogen. This was not anything out of the ordinary in terms of the usual array of viruses that give us viral respiratory diseases. I, I, believe, I believe you created a graph that illustrates this. Yes, it turns out that the, the, these curves, which show the winter burden deaths as humps every winter, right. um, some of them in some jurisdictions have an additional very sharp peak. It doesn't represent uh, uh, an anomalous, it doesn't represent a huge amount of deaths by comparison to the total winter burden because it's a very sharp peak but it's an anomalous peak, it's not a natural peak, and it happened in exact coincidence in time everywhere. Every jurisdiction that sees this peak, this sharp, anomalous, unnatural peak that's not due to the virus itself acting in a natural way in the society, uh, every jurisdiction that has this peak, the peak started exactly when the pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization, and the World Health Organization at that time recommended that hospitals, that states prepare their hospitals for a huge influx of people with critical conditions. And so the government responses to that World Health Organization recommendation is what killed people, what accelerated the deaths. And um, you can see that in the data. And you can also understand it in terms of how uh, immune vulnerable people are affected by these kinds of diseases. So what you did is you, you closed people into their institutional uh, places of residence. You didn't allow visitors in, so you isolated the most vulnerable parts of society that already had comorbidity conditions that were in a fragile state. You isolated them, so you had a huge psycho psychological stress burden on them and you close the environment so you locked in all the aerosol particles which fill the air uh, uh, and, and are in suspension in the air and that is the main transmission mechanism i've concluded from looking at the scientific literature uh, that causes this disease so you you ensured that many people that were locked into these institutions would die from this particular uh, seasonal uh, virus that causes a respiratory disease but the virus itself is not more virulent than other viruses. The total uh, winter burden deaths is not greater, but there is a signature of a sharp feature that lasts the full width at half maximum. This feature is three, four, three or four or five weeks, which is extraordinarily rapid, never been seen before. And, and it happens very late in the, in the winter burden season. And so a sharp peak like this has never been seen this late in the season before. And it's happening 
in coincidence everywhere on every continent where it occurs at the same time in direct, in direct immediacy after the de declaration of the pandemic. So it, to my eye, there is no doubt that there was an acceleration of deaths of vulnerable people due to government responses and that that should be investigated, even criminally, that there should be broad investigations in the jurisdictions where this happened to try to understand precisely and to document and to find responsibility for the decisions that were made, which were not science-based, uh, about these accelerated deaths. So that's one of the results of my studies. Now, um, I forget what, you, you also mentioned that the fact that masks were being pushed by the establishment in an incredible way. There's a huge push to, mm -hmm. to uh, promote masks. And I think I've developed an understanding of that. Um, the establishment and in Ontario where I live, in the province where I live, virtually all the municipalities are, are passing bylaws to enforce that masks be worn in public places everywhere. It's crazy and it's like a tsunami of, of these new bylaws and decisions. So you ask yourself, why in, in a situation where the science says there's no advantage to wearing a mask, in fact, the science, the, the scientific uh, um, um, examination of this is that masks applied to the general population are dangerous. There are many listed dangers, even dangers that the World Health Organization admits to and other dangers that we have pointed out because my organization, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, wrote sure. to the World Health Organization saying, you've got to retract this recommendation of masks that you've just put out. Anyway, all this to say well, well, that... Well, look, before yeah. we get down, go down the dangers, because it definitely... No, we won't go down the dangers. I was just going to say, why does the establishment want us to wear masks, okay? Right. Um, I've come to the conclusion, the, the following conclusion. The establishment desperately wants to convince us to wear masks because personally wearing a mask psychologically cements in the mm -hmm. person this mm -hmm. idea that we live in a world where there are dangerous viral pathogens that cause respiratory diseases that are extraordinary and that the only way you can be protected is to accept it is that the state is going to control your life and is going to give you vaccines. So this is, this is the thing. It's fear-based. It's, it's, it's a frenzy. It's like a call to war. Um, and it's irrational. And it's intended to uh, foment a kind of nationalism like you would in going to a war that is unreasonable and that is done for other reasons than the ones that are claimed by the government. So it, it's like a call to war where you're fermenting this nationalism, but it, the nationalism in this case is a belief that you live in this extraordinarily dangerous environment all of a sudden, which, yeah. you know, is, 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 is untrue, is untrue. I think that's a very astute observation, and I'm wondering if you believe that this is something that the promoters of this understood and was intentional about, or it's just an artifact of the recommendation. Well, I, I don't get to sit in the boardrooms. I don't get yeah, to yeah. be in the Zoom discussions where the elite financiers say, you know, how they're going to direct their think tanks to say what and, and to do what. But it's clear that uh, top uh, influencers uh, that also control our economy um, have a lot of leverage. And it's clear that they think about 
how to keep control and have greater control over, they're very concerned about middle class and professional class uh, people in the Western nations because their power depends on mm -hmm. th these people being uh, compliant and agreeing with their schemes. So there's a lot of propaganda, there's a lot of institutional uh, design and control to keep people in line and to keep them managing the global system that these global financiers uh, live off of. So there's no doubt in my mind that they decide. I mean, I saw a really stunning example of the coordination of these, of these powerful people when I did some research on uh, climate studies. I saw that uh, there was a time in the beginning 2000s where uh, the establishment decided they were gonna push this idea of uh, climate change and global warming being this significant danger. So before, there, before this, this particular date, there was debate in the mainstream media, there were scientists speaking on both sides, and then all of a sudden, overnight, every major newspaper in every Western-controlled nation started covering climate change as a danger in a one-sided coveraging five times more in terms of numbers of articles and pages and words written than they did previously overnight. You can draw graphs and you get this incredible spike. Now, that doesn't happen from the accident of publishers wanting to sell newspapers and trying to figure out how to do that. This is, this is uh, coordinated. This is the actual publishers instructing their editors of what the line is now. And I believe that there is uh, quite a network of uh, coordination globally. I mean, it's, it's, it's very obvious when you see prime ministers of different countries all saying exactly the same talking points as though they were reading from a script uh, on certain issues. There are many YouTube videos about this that are quite stunning where the Prime Minister of Australia, Canada, the UK, they're all reading exactly the same script at the same time across the world. This doesn't happen. These are not accidents. And they're not because they're particularly well informed in the usual way of informing information gathering. It's because it's coordinated, in my view. It, 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 it's not happening by any other mechanism. So I've seen in my studies on globalization and as part of um, uh, being a researcher at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, I've seen this over and over again. Um, so this is exactly that kind of thing. It's a coordinated sure. uh, campaign. Well, the, the, uh, we can talk for hours about that, and we may, we very well may, but uh, I want to take it back to the mask. Yes. And, and uh, I don't believe I got a clear answer to the Czech Republic differential. Oh, no, I didn't answer that. that yeah. And the Sweden Sweden's experience. Obviously, Sweden was a bit more liberal in their adoption of some of the social distancing rules and everything. Uh, so that may be more dramatic uh, comparison, but nevertheless, it is it's one that still changes by tenfold. And I don't think the acute peaks that you were referencing explains that. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't look at the Czech Republic specifically, so I'm not, I'm, you know, I didn't look at that in detail. But overall, my answer would be that all of these studies that attempt to find a correlation between even deaths, uh, never mind, uh, you know, cases as, as reported, but deaths 
in, in terms of the habits of people in uh, whether or not they're wearing masks, whether or not they, there was an order to, to not go outside, a lockdown and so on. All of these studies are very tenuous. It's, it's extremely difficult to do valid studies and to come to valid conclusions regarding the impacts of these social distancing and masking policies. So I don't have any faith in them, but I come back to this idea that it, what really matters is the hard data. And the hard mm -hmm. data is all cause mortality in any jurisdiction that you want to look at. And it has not been anomalous, statistically speaking, no matter how you slice it. So I don't care if you go to now, now having said that, however, I, I need to, I need to qualify and this may answer your question a little more. You mm -hmm. see, the transmission mechanism of these diseases, the dominant route is very fine aerosol particles that are in, in suspension in the air. Those aerosol particles stay in suspension when the absolute humidity is low. That's why these are winter events. As soon as absolute humidity rises, the, the aerosol particles are not stable in there. They condense water, they agglomerate, and they drop out through gravitational, and the thing does not transmit anymore. This is well known. It's been known for a decade. It's been extraordinarily well demonstrated by top scientists. And so um, now this, there is a band in latitude where this dry weather at the right temperature is ideal for transmitting the, this category of diseases, these viral respiratory diseases. And that banded latitude is in mid-latitudes. So it's in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere and it's inverted because the winter in the southern hemisphere is, in, is our summer. So you, you see it in both hemispheres, but inverted by, by year like that. And it, the, so the high transmission occurs in that band. It's very well studied. There are recent papers this year that come out and set it again and so on. And that is why when you move down towards the equator, transmission drops. You don't get transmission. This is not an issue when you, get, when you get to lower latitudes. And likewise, if you go too far north, it also does not transmit. Uh, and that is not well understood. I have some ideas as a physicist. I'm an expert in environmental nanoparticles and, and how they charge and what they do. Uh, so I have some ideas about why that is, but it hasn't been studied in detail. But the point is, the transmission band is very narrow. It's across Europe and, and North America in, in, in jurisdictions where you have temperatures between about uh, zero and 10 degrees Celsius and you have low absolute uh, humidity. That's where these aerosol particles that are the vector of transmission are completely suspended as part of the fluid air that's where um, they're really part of the fluid air. So any, any air that gets through, they're going to come through with it. That's why masks don't work. Um, and uh, that's how, and, and these particles are in suspension in the air and get trapped indoors. So that's why uh, centers where you have sick people and you're, and you're not controlling the air environment are centers of transmission. So we're talking about uh, old folks homes, hospitals, even people's homes traditionally are where you will catch it when you visit someone. So this is how these all, this entire class of diseases, this is how they're transmitted. Um, well, let me yeah. ask you a question about the particles. So I'm just curious as to what you're re referring to. So we have the right yes. defi same definitions. Is, that, is this a generic particle? Could it be a dust particle or is it actually the particle of the virus, which is much smaller than 
dust particles. Yeah, neither. Uh, let me be. Let me let me explain that. So we're we're talking about the small size fraction of aerosols. So typically smaller than two micrometers, and they're they're water droplets that are uh, that bear these virions that bear the 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 uh, virus particles, and there can be. Uh, dozens or hundreds of these virions per very small uh, uh, droplet of this size, okay? So those are the droplets we're talking about. When you get down to those sizes, gra gravitational outtake is a, very, is a very inefficient, and they basically stay in suspension. And as soon as you have currents or flow of air and so on in that fluid, which is the air, they're just, they're just there, they're carried. So there have been many studies that have measured the densities of such particles of the smallest size fraction and finds high densities in many places. There was a, uh, an article that demonstrated, for example, people were stuck on the tarmac in an airplane, the ventilation was off, they weren't, they weren't uh, taking the air out, and there was one or two people that had a, a, a nasty cold, as is common in the winter, and virtually everyone on the airplane got infected within within a week. They 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 were able to determine that everyone got infected, and it was it was interpreted as being due to being exposed to that aerosol environment in the airplane. So there there are many there are many studies of this type, and uh, there are studies in restaurants as well, and so on. And so we're talking about small aerosol particles, which are water based, which are you know saliva and water based, and that are uh, stabilized as spheres because of surface tension that are very small. And the only way to take them out is if they agglomerate, become bigger, and then gravitationally come out. Now, they're, they're not, they, they don't, in dry air, they don't agglomerate, and they stay very, a very long time in suspension in the air. That's why absolute humidity is a major controlling factor within that temperature range that I described. Okay, good. Thank you for yeah. expanding on that. So I'd like to um, focus the discussion now on and keeping it real simple because, you know, I don't want to go too scientific that makes it difficult for people to follow. But the reason this is so important is that it's, as we mentioned is and agreed upon, is that there's this massive, uh, consistent messaging that they're getting of propaganda from the media. So most people firmly believe in wearing masks. So I, I think if we give them some basic understanding on the mask, I want to go in that direction now as to why they may or may not work. Now, they appear to work in some circumstances in certain scenarios, like if you are in the operating room, and I've been in many surgeries before, and you have to scrub up, and it's a sterile environment for the most part. Uh, so that you don't have a lot of these other things going on and, and, and everyone in the operating room is wearing a surgical mask and it appears to work in that environment. And if it didn't, I don't think they would persist. So why don't we address that first? And then we'll talk about the differences between an N95 mask, a surgical mask and a cloth, a cloth mask that's made out of whatever material. Sure. Well, there, there, are, there are certainly applications of masks, as you said, in the surgical room, and I've been reading a lot about this, that uh, clearly are demonstrated to be important. And that's because if you have an open wound and you're operating on someone, you don't want to be spitting in their wound. You don't want to be putting all the, 
all the uh, microbes that are in, in your saliva into that wound. And that is very important. So the surgical masks in that application, as I understand it, are intended to prevent the, the surgeon or the attendants from, from infecting the, the open wound. And, and it, it has been demonstrated to be important in that application. Okay. Um, the application that we're considering, though, is the transmission of a viral uh, respiratory disease, which is a completely different beast because okay. the vector of transmission is not uh, saliva or spitballs or large droplets even. It is these uh, extraordinarily small aerosol particles that are in suspension and are part of the fluid air. Okay, so that's what you're, that's what you're uh, trying to prevent. With the mask. Right, because that, that's what many people are believe. They they know it's in the culture that if you're going to be getting sur surgery, you're wearing this mask. So they're assuming that it extends to these other applications, and it, and it likely does not. Yeah, that's right. And the the best uh, randomized controlled trials with verified outcome. In other words, the only scientifically designed studies that remove observational bias and that are valid and that are rigorous. Um, most of them are in clinical environments. And so they're looking at healthcare workers uh, treating people that potentially have uh, a viral respiratory infection or treating people that they know have such an infection and they're doing something that will uh, potentially generate a lot of aerosol particles uh, in the, by the treatment. And so uh, many, many trials have been done in that environment and none of them find any advantage to the health care workers uh, as to whether or not they will, you know, their likelihood of being infected uh, wearing masks versus not wearing masks, and also surgical masks versus respirators. No difference. There is no difference that can be detected, and there have been several, many, many randomized control trials and meta-analyses of these randomized control trials, yeah. and nobody can detect any advantage or difference between those two types of masks in those clinical environments. And there've also been uh, such well, studies. Well, yeah. let's, stop, let's stop there because yeah. you know, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of meta-analysis. They can be used sure. so frequently to, to disturb the truth and just misguide people because it really depends, because of selection bias, they pick the wrong studies to put in there. So I, I think the looking at each individual study is a lot more, especially if it's a, it's, randomized control trial is more appropriate. But um, the, I wanted to go back to this, the, the, the reason why the mask may not work, because there's the other rational justification, and this is commonly used, is that when you're wearing a mask, it's not so much protecting you from getting the infection, although that may be different with an N95 mask, but it's protecting others from being infected. So, in these studies you're referencing, are they looking at, they're probably not looking at that, that phase of the observation. They're looking at the actual mask wearer becoming infected rather than the person well, with the, the, wearing the mask infecting those they're con con connecting with. Or, or well, no, let, you know, let, let's be specific. Uh, yeah. in, in those studies that I'm talking about, and I did review the individual randomized trial studies, yeah. and I agree with you that meta-analysis can be very misleading. Um, um, in the studies, they're looking at, at whether or not the healthcare workers themselves are being infected. Now, the healthcare workers are working together, all right? And so they're in pr 
proximity to, to the patients, but also to themselves. And the studies do not discern um, how they would have been infected from their colleagues or from the patients or some other way. They only measure the total outcome. They, the study is not designed to discern that. So you can't tell, um, but, 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 but they find that it, in any case, it makes no difference. So what's so the, the outcome? Is, what's the outcome? The, the, the mask wear or any, anyone? No, no the, the, the outcome, the, the measured outcome is whether or not you were infected and the, you are looking if any healthcare workers in this study are infected, whether they're wearing masks or respirators or okay. nothing at all, okay? okay. So they don't discern whether you're protecting others by wearing the mask versus you're protecting yourself. It's not, it's not discerned, but I would, I would argue that since it's not discerned, and there are many studies, that these studies speak to the fact that it, it does neither, okay? because they're in proximity to each other and it makes no difference. So it makes no difference if everybody in your team is wearing a mask. It makes no difference if, if uh, one is and, and others aren't. And, and it just, they don't discern that, but they don't detect any difference. So that's one thing. Um, but to, well, to, to be fair, the question has not been explored in a rigorous randomized control trial, specifically that question. Now, but then you can ask, why do masks not work? That's conclusive that masks don't work in this application. If you... Uh, work in what respect? Protecting the user from getting infected? Or the, the people it, that it, use it? No one who wears a mask or is in an environment where masks are being worn or not worn, there's no difference in terms of your risk of being infected by the viral respiratory disease. Okay. There's no reduction, period. That is, there are no exceptions. All, all the studies that have been tabulated, looked at, published, I was not able to find any exceptions. If you, if you constrain yourself to verified outcomes. And most of these studies, were they using surgical masks? I would assume would be the standard. As I said, they, they do both. There, there have been like, I, th I believe, you know, five or six studies where they did detailed comparisons between respirators and surgical masks. And yes, what's most the, of the studies the are... What's the, what's the difference between a respirator and surgical mask? Is that the N95 mask, the respirator? Yes. Okay. That's okay. what I mean. Okay. Yeah. So, so why don't we look at why on a physical, simple, basic, common sense understanding of why a surgical mask may not work in this context because of all the gaps and taking to put it on, taking it off, and then, then we can address the N95 mask and the cloth mask later, but the surgical mask is pretty much, I think the standard for most people, if they're gonna use it. I mean, there's people on other ends too, but that, that, let's, let's hit that one first. Well, first I think it's important to say and to recognize that when we try to explain why and elucidate why using physics and chemistry and biology mm -hmm. and how, how you get infected and what is the minimal infectious dose and all these things. As soon as you start to get into the mechanism, you're just making up a story in a sense. Like you're trying to use scientific, you're trying to use scientific concepts. Well, sometimes stories help. Stories help sometimes. Yes. But it, I just want to emphasize that this is not whatever mechanism we describe and come to believe might be the most plausible one is not one that has been demonstrated to be true by randomized controlled trials or anything like that, okay? So okay. you have to separate that the randomized controlled trials tell us, first of all, that masks 
don't work in this application, okay? And um, if, if they did work, you would have seen it and you're trying to detect it and you don't detect it. That's one thing. And that is separate from trying to have a story of, well, why is it? Because people confuse these two categories of, of explanations. And I think it's important to recognize that no matter how clever your explanation is, it may not be right. Okay. So, so that's the first thing. Now, in terms, I have, nonetheless, I've gone ahead and tried to develop the best possible explanation as to why masks don't work. And as I said, I've come to the conclusion that the most prominent vector of transmission is these fine aerosol particles. And those fine aerosol particles will follow the fluid air. So even, so in a surgical mask, there is no way you're blocking the fluid air. When you breathe wearing a surgical mask, the, the lowest impedance of airflow is through the sides and tops and bottoms of the mask. In other words, very little of the airflow is going to be through the actual mask. The mask is only designed and intended to stop your spitballs from coming out and hitting someone. It's not about uh, ensuring that the flow of air is through the mask. And it's not through the mask, it's through the sides. And if the flow of air is through the sides, um, whatever is carried in the air, whatever molecules or small particles are carried in the air are going to flow that way as well. And that's how you get infected. Now, that means that if, if we're correct in this picture, which I believe is correct, you know, that for now it's my, it's my most plausible working model. If that is true, those aerosol particles are going to go out as easily as they're going to come in. In other words, any aerosol-like particles coming out will go out in the same way. There's perfect symmetry here in terms of the physics, okay? So you, it's just, if, if you're not stopping them coming in, you're not stopping them coming out either. They follow the flow, period. That's the way it is. So that's why there's an equivalence, I think, between it doesn't protect you and it doesn't protect anyone else either. Now, one of the arguments that the mask proponents uh, state is that Although what you said is true, they believe that it reduces the vi total viral load, that the obstruction to breathing out is going to catch some of these spitballs, and as a result, you won't have as large a viral load being emitted by a potentially infected individual. And that, uh, that is their justification why wearing the mask protects, doesn't, doesn't protect you, it's protecting them. Yes, I know that, and, but it's, it's not... It's not relevant. The large droplets drop to the floor immediately, they, and they're not breathed in, okay? okay. So they, they, they're not part of the transmission mechanism. I mean, let, let's put it this way. Yeah, Everything, I, 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 this, is, uh, this is what they're saying, though. This is what they I believe. know, I know. This is, I know. Conscious. This is why we has to be addressed. I know. Um, everything is possible. Very few things are likely. Okay, so you can do a study, a scientific study that demonstrates that viruses survive a fairly long time on a surface, whatever that surface is, and you can study different surfaces. That does not mean these are called fomites, these surfaces where viruses uh, can live or, or stay alive and stay active. Um, that does not mean that transmission occurs through surfaces. It only means that a scientist was able to establish that a virus can survive a long time on a surface. It doesn't tell you anything about the, the likely transmission mechanism of the disease. And so there are a lot of studies like this that are just basically irrelevant in terms of transmission mechanism. For example, there's a whole bunch of studies that physically demonstrate that a mask or a cloth or anything 
will stop some droplets when you try to push droplets through it. It's irrelevant because that's not the transmission mechanism. Um, um, so that, that's the point, is that you have, to, you have to try to see how does this extraordinarily contagious disease, because the, all of these viral respiratory diseases are extraordinarily contagious. And the reason they are is because they're transmitted by these fine aerosol particles that are in suspension in the air. And in a case like that, will a mask, will something that, that is preventing spitballs from coming out, protect you or protect others? And the answer is no. It makes no measurable difference. There might be, you know, it, there are many studies that show how difficult it is to actually infect someone when you're just trying to put something like a fluid or something that you know is bearing uh, the virus into their eye or into their nose. It's hard to do. The that's what the studies show. But if you take a fine aerosol and you breathe it in deeply, that's where the infection starts. And, and, and that's where the virus has evolved to be most effective. And uh, that works fine. So breathe in aerosols that are laden with, with these uh, viruses, you're going to be infected. Try to do anything else, it's going to be difficult. Okay. The most recent, uh, uh, the most recent randomized controlled trial uh, this year showed that, basically concluded that even hand washing, in terms of reducing the risk of these types of diseases, hand washing and distancing, they couldn't find any evidence that it that it was of any use. Masks, distancing, hand washing didn't help. So there is there there's this there's this. Um, dissonance between what the science actually tells you when you measure correctly and what the health authorities would like to tell you to do. They want you to be convinced that you're in this dangerous environment and that if you follow their directives and they're going to keep giving you what the directives are and that that's their purpose in life is to control your life and to give you directives and you're going to accept that and that's part of how they uh, convince you that you absolutely need the state to save your life. Um, I, I think that's what's going on. So, but, the, but the science doesn't, doesn't agree that you have to be two meters apart. It doesn't agree that you have to wash your hands continuously. It doesn't agree. There isn't even a demonstration that this idea that masks are dangerous because you can touch them. They do concentrate the pathogens. You touch them and then you might touch your eye or your mouth and so on. There's actually no scientific demonstration of that happening or that being likely to happen. It's just one of these stories, one of these uh, that I was talking about, one of these explanations. Sure. Okay. Well, well let, let's look at the differences between the N95 respirator mask and the surgical mask, because is my, from my understanding, they appear they could protect the user of what the person wearing the mask from contracting the infection, because they do indeed uh, force you to breathe in air through the mask and there's no holes around there because it's tight if it's worn properly but here's the kicker these masks were not designed for protecting a person in infectious environments it's designed for uh hazardous chemical use and i actually had a whole box of these in my garage just for that specific reason well before the pandemic started because i, I needed to have something to filter when i was exposed to environments where i was going to be breathing, breathing in something potentially bad so these these masks as i understand are designed to be vented out when you're breathing so you're 
there's no filtration going when you're breathing out. The only filtering is when you're breathing in. Well, you can you can have both types. Uh, a lot of the ones that they're selling have have out vents. That's true, and so guarantee. And, and it's crazy because you have some advertisements for these masks. They have pictures of them. They have big out vents on, uh, tied to an article on the internet that explains that you you need to protect people by wearing these things. I mean, <laughs> Good it's crazy. It's, it's just it, crazy. Yeah, there's no. Uh, no protection, none. Right, but they're not. They don't all have out vents, and there there are many that do not have out vents. Okay. And the problem with the ones that don't have out vents is that when you breathe out, they get pushed away from your face. Mm. Okay. Uh, and and it, that that phenomenon of pushing the force pushing it away is a strong force. I mean, you have to breathe out. And um, as you use the mask, it also gathers humidity, mm -hmm. and the humidity. Uh, uh, makes it harder to breathe through. So it gets pushed out even more. So I think these uh, N95 masks for sure do not do you, when you exhale, you will exhale whatever aerosol particles are in your breath uh, because of this phenomenon. Now, even if you tried to seal it and put really tight straps on it, um, there's always uh non-uniformity in the pore size of the mask that you know they're not manufactured perfectly there are seals yeah they're not n100 masks they exist but most of them are not they're 95 right but they're not they're not manufactured perfectly also and um there there's always imperfections on your skin you have hairs wrinkles mm. all kinds of things beards that's where that's those biggest holes if you like are where the low impedance flow is is going to occur and and these aerosol particles will get through just like the air does okay so so even in that case and this is again this has not been studied specifically with with a non-biased trial this is us trying to understand these things um but uh and then when you breathe in same thing there's going to be imperfections you're going to move it also and you know it's interesting because one of the randomized control trials a big one that compared masks and, and respirators, N95s, in, uh, with healthcare workers, the only statistically significant outcome that they discovered and reported on was that the uh, healthcare workers who wore the respirators were much more likely to get headaches and they mm -hmm. suffered from headaches. Okay? So there you go. That's now, if you've got a bunch of healthcare workers which are forcing to get headaches, how good is the healthcare going to be? Yeah, well, that, this is the other point I wanted to discuss because you've done a very good job of elaborating the likelihood of the non-effectiveness and their intended purpose to prevent transmission. But very few, virtually no one is talking about the downsides of wearing masks. So mm -hmm. you mentioned one, headaches. Why don't we just go down that rabbit hole because I believe there's others that result from breathing in air on a long-term time or time or term basis where you have lower partial pressures of oxygen. Yeah, there are a lot of admitted, there are a lot of um, admitted dangers uh, to wearing masks. The World Health Organization in its, in its memo, its recent memo, I believe June 5th, where they reversed their position and decided that it was a good idea to recommend mask use in the general population, uh, population in that document, they actually say you have to consider the potential harms and they list what they consider are all the potential harms. They missed a lot, but 
one of the first, the top ones is you're concentrating the pathogen laden material onto this material near your face, nose, eyes, and so on. And you're touching the mask all the time. You're touching yourself. You're touching others. You're, it's not a controlled clinical environment. So there's potential for transmission in that way. You might wear the mask more than once. You might uh, store it at home and then wear it again. You might do all kinds of things. So you, you, you do not have a controlled environment in terms of how to dispose of that pathogen concentrated material. Okay, so that is a danger that's admitted and they warn you of. And that was the main danger that the, the health organizations, um, that was the reason that they did not recommend masks in the general population. Okay, now there have been no studies that, that eliminate that danger that show that it's not viable. Nothing has changed in that term, but they just decided for political reasons to now recommend masks, as I understand it. So that's one admitted danger. Um, they also well, mention... Fauci's justification, at least in the United States, was that the position was uh, accurate, which initially described, but then when he retracted that, it was said, he, oh, well, we were lying because we wanted to preserve all the masks for the help to protect the healthcare workers. And that's why they changed their position. That, that was the story that they gave. Now, whether or not that's the truth, who knows? Yes, I, I saw that. I, I saw the video where he admits he was not telling the truth there. Uh, when he when he when he was explaining that, but um, so that's an admitted danger. The, the 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 World Health Organization document has a long list of admitted dangers, and what I what I find extraordinary is that they also have a list of what they call potential advantages. And uh, when I compare the two lists, the the potential dangers far outweigh the potential advantages. And so you have to ask yourself, what the heck are you doing? How can you make this these two columns and compare the advantages and disadvantages and have one clearly outweigh the other and and then conclude that therefore we recommend masks this is just nonsense right irrational <laughs> it's it's irrational yeah it's um so then we added our list my association added our list of things that they weren't even considering and you know we we, we went into the civil civil liberties aspect of it as well because I think this is very important. Um, one of the fundamental aspects of a free and democratic society is that the individual is entitled to evaluate the personal risk to themselves when they act in the world, okay? The risk evaluation is a very personal thing. It involves your personality, your judgment, your knowledge, your experience, and your culture. And it's a very personal thing that you do, you're entitled to do for yourself. When you decide to go outside, walk on the sidewalk, take a bicycle, go someplace, meet people, um, accept a medical treatment or not, uh, anything you might do, you are the person that evaluates the risk to your person, to your body. That is a fundamental thing that you are entitled to do. That's part of your independence as an individual in a society. And if the state is forcing you to accept their evaluation of risk, then you are violating that precept. And in addition, it's doing it in a case where there is no scientific justification. I mean, I can understand if the state is saying you cannot shoot live ammunition in a, in a public square. Uh, you know, that it's clear that you, 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 there, there's, all kinds of 
uh, evidence that that is not, uh, is that, that that is a highly dangerous thing that puts others at risk. But wearing a mask is nothing like that. It's a world apart. There is no, we have tried to find evidence of the effect of masks in this application, and we can't find any. That means it sets a lower limit on the effectiveness of masks that is so low. In other words, the risk involved here, the risk reduction that may be possible, that is unmeasurable, is very small compared to many other risks in society that the government, that the state admits and even condones and even is responsible for sometimes. Okay, so that is a civil liberties issue um, in itself. The other important thing is that we, we also pointed out that when you uh, convince people that masks are the solution and you get everyone to wear a mask, the government and the institutions are removing their duty of care towards you because they're saying, all you need to do is get people to wear masks. We don't have to actually uh, prevent transmission in the centers of transmission. We don't have to manage the air in such a way that not everybody that is immune vulnerable in this establishment will be at risk of dying and so on. They remove their duty of care responsibilities by saying, well, we're just not going to allow visitors and we're going to force everyone to wear masks. Well, no, you need to look at scientifically what is happening here. Why are people at risk? What is immune vulnerability due to? What can you do about it? And then you have to do something about it if you're serious about your duty of care towards these people. So I think it's, it's partly also, it, it has that side effect of, of letting them get away with not uh, taking care of the people that they're responsible for. Yeah, it's also setting the precedent that if they can get away with instilling or forcing everyone to wear a mask for the greater good, not for scientific justification, but for the greater good, then it's a very small step to force everyone to get a mandatory vaccine for the greater good. Yes, and I agree. And I, I would, we went further in our letter. We, we, we put it this way. You see, there's a recent scientific study that is seminal in my mind that came out last year, 2019, Written, actually, the first author is the executive director of the Ontario Civil Liberties Association that, that I do the research for. And uh, he's a physicist also. And he wrote a, an article with, with another physicist. And what they showed was they tried to look at under what conditions a society will gradually degrade towards a more totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that there were two major control parameters uh, that characterize the society that will tell you if that is likely to happen or not. And one of those control parameters is authoritarianism in the society. And what they mean by that is um, how, how successful can an individual be to refuse something, like to refuse to wear a mask if they protest? How, what is the level, uh, what is the chance that they'll succeed if they refuse? So that, that would be related to the degree of authoritarianism. And then the other important parameter is the degree of violence in the society. So how violent is the repression if you disobey? So how big is the fine? Can you go to jail? How much punishment will you be subjected to uh, and, and personally suffer 
if you disobey a particular rule, for example, wearing of a, uh, of a mask. So those two parameters, they were able to establish a, what we call a phase diagram of societies in, 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 in the diagram of those two parameters. And what they found was, is that in, in present society, if you estimate the, the average value of those two parameters for North, for United States or Canada, we're in a state right now where uh, the society is very gradually and very slowly evolving towards totalitarianism. And the way to slow that and to prevent it is for people to object and to scale it back. So as soon as you agree with an irrational uh, order, an irrational command, and you agree to go along with it, and it's not science-based, then you are doing nothing to scale that back. You're doing nothing to bring back society towards the free and democratic society that we should have, and you're allowing this slow march towards totalitarianism. So that's, that's how I would explain the importance of, of objecting to this and of trying to find it in society that people will, will resist this. Well, great points, and that's an area I wanted to dialogue with you on because... It would seem to me, and I've been somewhat negligent about diving deep into this to study, to come to a really uh, scientific or at least evidence-based conclusion based on the research, you know, what seemed to make the most sense like you have. I just didn't have that time because I've been focusing on the other side, the preventive aspect, building up the immune system and, and looking at all the variables around that. So that's my, been my primary focus. But that's one of the reasons I wasn't interested in engaging in this discussion to bring up my level of knowledge on this, but it's assuming you've done this due diligence and you've reviewed the evidence and you're convinced that masks don't work. And it's actually even worse than that. They make you sick, or at least they radically increase your likelihood of getting ill from some other disease. So you conclude that this is a, this risk is this wearing this mask is providing essentially no benefit to me or those in, that I'm exposed, exposed to, or I, that are exposed to me. So you, you're, you have that conclusion. You understand that participating in this nonsense is actually going to increase the risk of even further craziness from the government. So what, do, what have you concluded and do you recommend as a way to nonviolently protest? Because there are some comp complications of resisting this. I mean, if you don't wear your mask on a plane, you will be permanently barred from ever flying the rest of your life on that, on that airline. That's it. You're gone. You're, you're just uh, history. So, I mean, I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, of a, I, but maybe you could walk through, and I'm sure you thought this through, as, as to how people can object to this nonsense and essentially wearing the mark of the beast. Yes. Well, um, by coincidence, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association today, this morning, just put out a press release and put out a statement that it formally recommends a peaceful civil disobedience regarding mask wearing in Ontario. And in, its, in the memo that was put out, we explain how best to uh, perform that civil disobedience. So we explain to people that uh, you should be uh, calm and confident and not get into arguments and not try to convince the authorities. Just, just express your dissonance, your, your, sorry, your, your, your disobedience regarding this rule. And then we explain that uh, they may want to trespass you. They may want to give you a fine. 
that you can anticipate uh, uh, fighting that fine in court. Uh, and, uh, you know, we go through the steps and how to, so that people can visualize how to do this. And we explain that some of their uh, um, co-shoppers or, you know, co-citizens will be angry and will be aggressive. And to not get into a fight uh, and not to get into a word of words or not try to convince them, but to just stick to um, that they uh, are not going to comply and to be very calm and to have the, the kind of civil disobedience that we've seen be successful at various times in North American history and, and to try to practice that and that um, there are risks involved. Uh, but it's often worth it to the individual to, to, to have that civil disobedience because there are many individuals that don't know what to do, that are very angry because they're being forced to wear masks and they, they see it as absurd and a constraint. And so we try to give them uh, a view of a venue on how to resist this. And so that memo just went out today, uh, this morning, in fact. And um, I, I support that view. Uh, later today, I'm going to be going to the parliament. I'm in uh, uh, Canada's capital, Ottawa, and I'll be taking the, the uh, public transit where they recommend masks, and I will not be wearing a mask, so I'll see how that goes. Um, and I will be going to the, a demonstration on Parliament Hill uh, against the, these kinds of impositions. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, and we also recommend when people are uh, practicing this kind of civil disobedience, that they not be isolated, that they try to form a grassroots group of support and that they don't do it alone, that they try to bring at least one person, one supporter with them, that they record the interaction with the authorities, that they report back on social media and to their groups and um, with details of what happened and so on. And uh, so we make all these kinds of recommendations and uh, we hope that that will help to reduce the tension between those who uh, want to not wear masks and those who think that it's vital and that our lives are in danger. We, 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 we hope to create kind of a smoother messaging that uh, a lot of people, or at least some people, do not believe this mask story and do not believe that they are at risk and are willing to practice civil disobedience to make that point. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm inspired and you know, sometimes it's just not, uh, I guess, obvious that, that that's a, a practical alternative that you just don't even factor into the equation. So I'm actually uh, going to be speaking, by the time this interview is out, probably the same week or right around there in Las Vegas, I'm one of the keynote speakers at Freedom Fest, and which you would be well over a thousand people, maybe 2,000 people there. And the governor of Nevada has required mask wearing throughout all public places in Nevada. So, which includes Caesar's Palace, where the event is at, and uh, I'm giving a lecture on masks. So, I'm going to encourage everyone to peacefully be civilly disobedient. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we wrote a very good memo, and I, 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 yeah, I maybe it'll be an inspiration to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For we could at least put a link to it in this article, and uh, but that is a good strategy because it's it's. It may be a painful and uncomfortable and uh, take some of the time out of your life, but it's really, I think, an important step in preventing the relentless march towards, towards totalitarianism, which is, yes. which is on the road that we're on. And we just got to stop this sometime. You just can't 
you can't give in. You've got to uh, object. Say this. This is not right. You don't have a, a, a logical scientific justification to implement this. Yes. Well, unfortunately, in the past, this march to totalitarianism has led to dreadful wars, and it took uh, these huge catastrophes to have a reset, and then to have uh, the start again of society and uh, democratic institutions and so on. Unfortunately, in the past, it has taken that kind of an event to get a reset. But what I'm hoping is that uh, you can have small resets and, and ratchet back things uh, enough to have a decent society uh, without having to have a, a huge catastrophe. I mean, the kinds of catastrophe that can occur here are, you know, you vaccinate uh, some of the vaccines will not be as safe as some others and so on. And there might be large numbers of reactions, uh, very consequential health effects from these vaccines. Um, this, is, this is a dangerous experiment, uh, developing and applying a vaccine for something that's been with, with us for millions of years, which are these viral respiratory diseases. Yeah, I would have to disagree with you there. I don't, okay. I, you said there might be. I would just slash, if I was editing that statement, slash, make a giant, Block with might and, and insert will be on an untested vaccine that is never that just that bypassed all the safety trials and, and is rapidly through Operation Warp Speed uh, designed to be given to mil tens, hundreds of millions of people. It's untested, and they've been trying to. It's not like they haven't been trying to work on coronavirus vaccines for over a decade and failed miserably. It's a really challenging project, and to, to do something in, in a year or less is to, you can. It is virtually impossible not to have a, a, a vaccine that's not going to cause loads of complications. Far worse than anything it's going to prevent. If it, if it is possible to prevent this through a vaccine mechanism, that's right. No, I the the question of whether it's possible or likely or effective is is a good one. But you know the thing that disgusts me the most is that they're going to vaccinate, do mass campaigns of vaccination in equatorial countries in Africa where these diseases do not transmit. By the very, by the very physics and biology of the disease, they do not transmit in equatorial countries. There's a narrow band of latitudes where they transmit, where this is an issue, but it's not uh, equatorial continents. And so you do not go in and get the public to pay corporations to develop vaccines to vaccinate everyone in Africa at, and, and uh, using cut rate methods for making these vaccines because you, you can afford to use cheaper methods uh, when you're only selling it to uh, other nations in the United States and so on. I mean, it's disgusting. It's immoral. It's, it's, it's really... But, but, but the, you know what's even more frightening? It's not new. They've done it before. Yes. I don't know if you looked at the history of HIV, but there's really strong evidence that it was brought into the human population because of just this process. They developed polio vaccines based on infected monkey cells that they used to grow up these, these, these vaccines and, and give it to the, the, these people in Africa. And the, the, the monkey cells were contaminated with SIV, simian uh, immunodeficiency virus. 
and which is a distant cousin of HIV, and that transmitted morphed the species, it, it jumped the species in that, and that's that's to me this that appears to be the strongest evidence of how the HIV got into our, our population from this very same process. I, I haven't studied HIV, but I, I, I have looked at the scientific literature to know that there are some huge controversies related to HIV and the cause of HIV that, that are in the peer-reviewed literature. I know that. Um, but um, yeah. Sorry, I forgot what I was going to say next. <laughs> well, it's just the, the problems with the vaccine. So it's a, it's a whole separate issue. And But what I really appreciate the framing of how uh, allowing yourself to capitulate and surrender to these orders to wear a the mask is actually increasing your risk of, or increasing not your risk, but the cultural risk of having an imposed mandatory vaccine. Oh, there's there's no doubt about that. Uh, it, we live in a crazy world, um, and I've been writing about it for many years. Um, we we could just expand this, you know, into many many areas of medicine and society and technology and so on. But we we do live in a world where we are just being exploited and manipulated. Uh, for for profit and control, control more than profit actually, because it's been demonstrated. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, guys like Gates don't need any more profit. But right, right. They, they want the control. There's very clear to that for for that. So it's more than money. There was a a very interesting study that was done by a renowned uh, historian of science. At Technology, who was my friend, he's passed away now. David F. Noble uh, wrote wrote books about uh, how how control is implemented in our societies, and he demonstrated that many big corporations in the USA, like like IBM and Bell Research and so on, and 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 big manufacturers, that when they had occasions to make higher profits, but that involved giving workers more uh, say and more freedom, they would prefer to sacrifice profits in order to have a tighter top-down control of the workforce. So he demonstrated many examples of that in his books, uh, America by Design and so on. Um, yeah, so there, there's, there's plenty of historic uh, demonstration of that that the control is more important than actual profit. Yeah. Well, I, th I uh, thank you for giving us all this great information and really uh, a primer and under helping us understand why masks may not be the best solution. In fact, may be a really bad choice if you're concerned about even worse totalitarian measures that's going to be implemented by the government. So I'm wondering if you'd like to make, give us a summary or you know, emphasize certain points that you went over. I wouldn't know how to summarize. We've been talking for quite a, oh. quite a bit. Um, I, I, what, what, what was your main recommendation? Well, what, my, what my, my main conclusion is that there was no extraordinary virulent, uh, viral pathogen causing a respiratory disease. It did not happen. You can see it in the hard facts the fact that the winter burden, all-cause mortality is not any different than it has been for many decades, 
you, there, are, there is a signature that government actions, government responses to the declaration of the pandemic accelerated deaths of the most vulnerable people that were at highest risk of, a, of the seasonal viral respiratory disease, but there is no special uh, danger this season. So it has been uh, fabricated manipulation and profiting off of uh, the idiocy of, uh, of our society, which has been largely created by continually asking us to be compliant with ridiculous things and continuously uh, pumping out the propaganda through our institutions, through the mainstream media, and so on. So th this is what has just happened. And but, it, it's shocking. But let me uh, just uh, tease out a detail on that, because it would seem that this is indeed a particularly virulent pathogen, at least from my review of the evidence, that it does, it's a distinct clinical entity that's given a name, COVID-19, uh, that seems to be, have different characteristics than traditional flu that's more in, in, in predisposed populations, specifically those who have insulin resistance and are vitamin D deficient. That's like this, the, the dynamic duo that just makes you a sitting duck for this illness, that you're going to get this massive inflammatory uh, response, which results in a cytokine storms that has thrombogenic uh, side effects that, you know, the, 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 the normal upper respiratory infections don't ever encounter. So, I mean, you're, you're not denied that, right? I mean, there's clearly... I, well, you know, I, I haven't... I've read it enough to come to my own conclusion, which is yeah. probably most of that is scientists and practitioners convincing themselves that they have a new and very special thing. I mean, I think if you were to study the deaths due to influenza, for example, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a given hospital at a given time, there are always more deaths in certain places than others. If you were to put the same effort and offer the same through propaganda, offer the same incentive to medical researchers and scientists to, to be able to claim new discoveries and to claim that something really special is happening, you would get about the same result. That's my sense of it. So I, I well, yeah. very well could be. I mean, anything's possible, and no one knows the full spe spectrum. But it but, does but, seem uh, to be a particularly pathogenic illness, and and we're looking a lot. You know, there's another controversy as to the origin of this virus, and it's it is clear that the the traditional uh, statement that this is zoonotically transmitted is just a bunch of hogwash. I mean, there's so much evidence now that's it's kind of right. and in fact, we're in the process of conducting campaigns and doing FOIA requests and everything to get many of these uh, BSL three and four labs shut down. Uh, I, I always come back to the same thing. The, uh, the winter burden, all cause mortality is no different than it's been for the last many decades. Yeah. That's, I always come back to that. That's a, that's a hard fact. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so we're not talking about a nuclear war. We're not talking about a massive nope. earthquake. We're not talking about, uh, a, a truly virulent pathogen that has caused enormous amount of deaths where you actually know people that have died from it. Uh, we're not talking about anything like that. It has been, in terms of all-cause mortality uh, numbers, this has been a regular season. Um, it's statistically no different than others. The only thing that's been different is this incredible 
uh, campaign and the, the very aggressive government actions that have been harmful. Yeah, yeah, that, that, difficult to argue with that. Uh, and uh, especially down the road. Now, some people may argue with it, but when we get this behind, this, this is behind us, you're going to retrospectively look at this and just you're going to do a face plant and say, I can't believe I let him get away with this. So anyway, thank you for, for uh, all the information and I'm hopefully it will inspire some civil disobedience with respect to mask wearing. Well, it was my pleasure to have this wide ranging discussion. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. All right.